I heard a few wows in the room. I wanted to grab your attention this morning to illustrate how the Apostle Paul grabs our attention in the first major sentence of the book of Ephesians. So I was thinking this week, how could I do this? Maybe I could get a face tattoo and uh, that, that wouldn't go very well. And then I thought, well, you know, I had a lot of other ideas and someone came out after last night's service and said, you know, if you wore a tutu, that would grab our attention. But I don't even want to think about, don't want you to even imagine what that would be like. But uh, I've preached this passage first a number of years ago and decided to do something. And I wore a tuxedo then, and then I've done it a couple of times in other locations, and then preached it here about nine years ago, and I wore a tuxedo because I I think it just helps grab our attention and, and understand what this opening sentence in the book of Ephesians is really all about in terms of how God wants us to get a hold of this. And so if you open your Bibles or go on your uh, mobile device and your Bible app to Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 14 this week and next week. It's all one sentence. It's the longest sentence in the New Testament from verse 3 of Ephesians 1 through verse 14. And uh, it's, it's a sentence, one sentence, to give us the depth and breadth of this landscape of our salvation so we can see the beauty of who we are in Christ and what that means in our lives even now and forever. And so as we look into this sentence, I thought it'd be good to look at the first part of the sentence this week. We'll look at verses three through six. Then we'll look at verses seven through 14 next week. We introduced this wonderful book as we talked about it last week. We looked at the Bible Project Overview video, which is available on our website if you'd like a good introduction and background of the book. We talked about how the first three chapters of this letter from the Apostle Paul to the first century church at Ephesus, the first three chapters are about our standing before God in heaven. And the last three chapters emphasize how we walk here on earth. And so we get this grand picture of who we are in the Lord and then how we live and love like Jesus because of who we are in the Lord. And I thought it'd be important for us to just think about and and allow God to speak into our lives in terms of his great plan of salvation. That's why I've titled the message, Wow, God Has a Plan. And he wants to grab our attention in this opening sentence. Now, whether I grabbed your attention by wearing a tuxedo, or if you're a guest, I don't normally wear this kind of attire, to teach in, but whether I grabbed your attention with that or not, I trust that the Holy Spirit will just grab your attention and help you see who you are in Christ here in Ephesians 1. And so I want us, as we look at these four verses, to understand this. Before we ever had a problem, God had a plan. Before we ever had a sin problem that separated us from God, God had a salvation plan and it was in place. And once we understand that and we we just step back and say, wow, God has a plan, then we should move beyond just that wow. God's plan should wow us, yes, and propel us forward in living for him. When we realize afresh who we are in Christ and and the beauty of his grace and goodness to, to us, that should move us forward, motivate us, and propel us to live for him, to live and love like Jesus wherever we go. So I appreciate Aaron having read the entire passage here on the video of 3 through 14 here in Ephesians 1. We'll be looking at verses uh, 3, 4, 5, and 6. And we'll see in each of these verses an emphasis on who Christ is. So as we survey the uh, the landscape of our salvation, 
What will happen in each of these points, in each of these verses, is their eyes will be lifted up to see Jesus, who the writer of Hebrews describes as the author and finisher of our faith. And we'll turn our eyes to see Jesus afresh. The first thing that we're going to notice here about God's incredible plan of redemption involves access. Access. When Adam and Eve were created in the Garden of Eden, God walked with them. All of creation was called good. He walked with them and communicated with them in the cool of the day. And he told them to enjoy all of creation, but they couldn't eat of the one tree or they would die. They would be cut off and separated from God, and there would be a curse that would hover on all the earth and over humanity. And uh, Adam and Eve were tempted, and they fell to that temptation. They were cast in the Garden of Eden, and they were separated from the intimate express presence of God. God put a, an angel with a flaming sword there to demonstrate this separation, this lack of access they would have to God. But then in Christ, we have this beautiful picture that we have access to heaven itself. Look at verse 3, Ephesians 1 here. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is, lifting up our eyes to see Jesus, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, the first verb of the four major verbs here in this section of this one sentence, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing, and here it is again, in Christ. That's the title of this series, In Christ. Throughout this book, we constantly are hearing, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Notice the phrase, in the heavenly realms. This sentence is only used by the Apostle Paul, and he only uses it in his writing to the church at Ephesus. It's nowhere else used in the New Testament, and in this book, he constantly lifts our eyes up to say who we are in the heavenlies in Christ, our position and our posture now and forever before God as his children. And this in the heavenlies speaks of, of our, our being able to access those spiritual blessings with which he has blessed us. They come from the very throne room of heaven itself. We have access to God. In the Old Testament, part of what happened with the law and the priests and the sacrifices and all of the, the rituals of the tabernacle and the temple was to demonstrate, as there was a, an inner sanctum where they would consider that the, the place where the intimate presence of God dwelt, the people were cut off from that. The high priest only went into that, that place of the special dwelling of God in the Holy of Holies once a year. And, and there was a veil that separated them and all those rituals, sacrifices, priests, and laws, all of that, that curtain that was hanging there was to demonstrate that because of our sin, we are cut off from access to God. But when Jesus died on the cross, Matthew says that that veil was ripped from the top to the bottom. God ripped it himself to give us full access so that the writer of Hebrews says we can now boldly come before the throne of grace. We can bring our, our knees before him confidently and that he will bless us with every spiritual blessing, these things that flow from that access we have in heaven itself. We have access. He blessed us with all this, the blessings we could ever need. Anything you're going to need to go through the high points of life, the low points of life, the twists and turns, he has blessed you with those things. You have access to those things as you have access to the very throne room of heaven. And what do we know about this access? What do we know about this, this access to the blessings of God? Well, first of all, this access and, and these blessings are eternal, not temporary. The moment we receive Christ, we have uh, this access and these blessings. It's not just something that'll go away next week and we gotta try to find it again or it's gonna disappear in a few years. 
we are granted this access forever. Secondly, it's total, not limited. God isn't holding anything back from you. He is making available to you what you need for today. Maybe you don't have today what you're going to need for tomorrow, but he's going to take care of you tomorrow as well. He gives us total access, and he gives us total access to all the the blessings we're going to need. Thirdly, these are spiritual, not material blessings. Spiritual, not material blessings. Sometimes we simplify our faith and we say, if you're being faithful, if you're walking with God, if you're living out the Christian life as you should according to the scriptures, if you're living by faith, then you're always going to be wealthy and healthy and prosperous. And there is this, this mindset, and certain segments of Christianity even preach that. And if you're really faithful, you're going to have a lot of stuff in life, material blessings. He's saying that these blessings are spiritual blessings that are rooted and flowing from the realm of heaven itself. And this idea of a prosperity gospel is flawed. Now, some go to the other extreme and say, well, if you're really faithful and you're walking with Jesus, you'll, you'll never have any material blessing. You'll just live in poverty. And the poverty gospel is wrong too. You see, God chooses to bless some of his children with a lot of resources, some with not so much The key is that whatever he has given or not given to us materially, he will take care of our needs physically and all because of his spiritual blessings and he'll give us what we need for today. This is spiritual, not material. You remember uh, the great sufferer of the Old Testament, Job. He lost everything financially, lost his family. Everything was wiped out, everything materially he could have. And yet he would cry out, that he still had the spiritual blessing of his Redeemer. I know my Redeemer lives. Fourth and finally, this, this access and these spiritual blessings are personal. It says, in Christ. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's personal, not theoretical. There are many philosophies of how to live. There are many religions about how to do life correctly. There are theories and philosophies and ideas and concepts that you can, you can engage with and interact with. But Christianity is not a theory. It's not a philosophy. It's not an idea. It's not something that's abstract. It's not even a religion. Biblical Christianity is about a relationship with God through Jesus. It's personal. It's distinct and different than every other world worldview or, or philosophy. It's a personal relationship with God through Jesus. Not theoretical, or it's not ideological. Access. Back in uh, 2004, I was pastoring a Bible Center church in Charleston, West Virginia. And um, that was, uh, it was the summer of 2004, and July 4th fell on Sunday. That makes it always interesting when you're preparing to preach and what you're going to preach on such an incredible day for us as Americans. And um, we knew that the President of the United States, the sitting President, George W. Bush, was going to be coming uh, to Charleston to deliver a Fourth of July speech uh, on the beautiful state capitol grounds there in Charleston. And uh, many presidents go there on times like that to, uh, to thank those who have fought for our freedom, like on a July 4th, and that's because the great state of West Virginia has more veterans per capita than any state of the 50 states. And so George Bush had planned this big speech as president there on the lawn around 1 o'clock or 1.30 on the 4th of July that Sunday. And um, we all knew he was coming, and that was drawing some interest in the city, and, and to have a president coming to give a speech like that on such an important holiday. And on that Wednesday, uh, my assistant... Uh, uh, 
said, you know, there's, there's somebody on the phone. They claim to be the White House. And I said, oh, this is probably my brother or some friend just messing with me, right? And so I, uh, I picked up the phone, and the person identified themselves as being from the White House, the White House advance team. And, and um, they said, you know, you know, President Bush is coming this weekend to Charleston, yeah? And they said, well, he, he likes to go to church on a regular basis, and he hasn't been able to be in church in six to eight weeks. And and he's been traveling, and he would really like to worship that morning somewhere in Charleston. We asked local leaders, and they said that he should worship at Bible Center. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, okay, who is this again, you know? Well, then our local congresswoman, who's now one of the senators from West Virginia, Shelley Moore Capito, I didn't know she was on the line. She spoke up, and I knew her personally. And she said, you know, Sean, this is the real deal. This isn't a joke. Um, the president would like to come to Bible Center on Sunday. And I said, okay, that's great. And we, we, we talked to her. I said, well, he, you know, he, we are not a political church. We're not going to let him come up and speak on the platform. He said, he doesn't want to be on the platform. As a matter of fact, um, he really doesn't want to even, it, this is when a, when a president goes to church to worship, it's considered his private schedule and isn't pre-announced that he's going to do that. And so it'll probably get out, obviously, but um, this is not, he just wants to come and sit and worship with you. And so I checked in with our elders, and, and they, uh, they said, yeah, you know, we'd let anybody come and worship, whichever party or whatever. That's great. All right, let's, sitting present, what an honor. And so we started to make plans. The next day, uh, they showed up. I mean, White House Advance, Secret Service, uh, communications, all kinds of people, and, and they brought in 17 new phone lines, and they took over our gymnasium, made that the media center, and they began to do different things to secure the building, and they had planned that on that day, we had an 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, and 11 o'clock service, that people who came into our building would have to go through like airport security and have their Bibles and purses and everything gone through and all that to come in. They had snipers on the roof, helicopters over, overhead. They had uh, Secret Service individuals in, that looked like Secret Service, and then there were people who were in plain clothes throughout, sheriff's deputies, state troopers. It was quite a thing, and this, this was all uh, supposed to be on his private schedule, but you do something, something like that in a city like Charleston, and it gets noticed. So the rumors were getting out, and they assigned a Secret Service agent to me who kind of traveled with me those few days leading up to it, and a White House spokesperson, that uh, communications person who tried to res- help me respond to media inquiries and things. It was just quite crazy. Well, they told me that um, uh, I would be going to the speech he was giving after the service downtown uh, with my family in a black SUV that would follow the presidential limousine. We'd be part of his motorcade, but in a car behind. But I would get to meet him at the church <clears throat> because it was part of his private schedule. Um, uh, he, we wouldn't be behind him at the speech. He wouldn't mention us at his speech. Uh, my family wouldn't get to meet him. Leslie and the kids wouldn't get to meet him. And uh, that morning, I got a call pretty early from the Secret Service guy, and he said, hey, we got word that Condoleezza Rice, who's supposed to be with him, the Secretary of State, is not going to be with him. And so there's an extra seat in the limousine. He'd like to invite you to ride with him down to the speech. I said, that's interesting. So they said, you need to get here early so we can train you how to walk down to the limousine with him. So I was to walk him out of the service, down these steps to the limousine. They said, when you get to the limousine, it'll be right here. And they walked me through it. They said, the president will probably say, after you, uh, pastor, and he'll invite you to get in the limousine first. They said, but you just politely say, Mr. President, I've been instructed to walk around the limousine. I said, oh, why is that? And they said, well, we want to limit his exposure. I noticed this, his exposure to any snipers. We don't want him to be exposed too long, so we'd rather you walk around. 
<laughs> well, they went through that, and, and then the Secret Service agent took me into my office, and he gave me a pin that he put on my lapel, and on the pin was a little letter. It was a metal pin that was stuck there, and he said, nobody else in the building has this. All security from local police to sheriffs to troopers to FBI to Secret Service, anybody who's here, whether they're plain clothes or you can identify them, they all know what this pin means. This means you are the only one outside of security that has complete access to this entire building and to wherever the president is, you can be. You have complete access to the president with this pin. Don't tell anybody what it means, just wear it, don't lose it, keep it, it gives you that kind of access. Well, people didn't know which service the president was coming to. He was coming to the 11, so they started showing up at 8 and just sitting in through. They had to hear me preach, you know, two times to get to the service where he was going to be. And after the 8 o'clock, I went back into my office, and the Secret Service agent met me, and he said, are you missing anything? And I said, no, I've got my Bible, I've got my notes. And he said, where's your pen? I said, uh-oh. And he held it up in his hand. I said, oh, good, where'd you find it? Was it in here? He said, no. One of our undercover uh, folks saw it stuck to the heel of a person in the lobby. <laughs> and I felt terrible, just terrible. And um, he kind of chewed me out and said, this gives you complete access to the president. Now, eventually what happened was Air Force One had a mechanical problem, was delayed about an hour, which meant he couldn't come to the church. He went straight to the speech. Uh, but it also changed things up so that Leslie and the kids and I got to spend about 10 or 15, maybe 20 minutes with the president by ourselves, and they all got to meet him. But I, I will never forget what that guy said when he said, with this pin, you have complete access to the president of the United States wherever he is on this campus. Think about that now. That's so impressive. I felt pretty big, but then later in the day, I was thinking about it. Access to the Oval Office, access to the president and his presence is one thing, but to have access to the creator of all the universe and know that he is there in this access, ready to give us the spiritual blessings we need in Christ, that's amazing. That's this incredible grace we have in Christ. We have access to the very throne room of heaven that ought to grab our attention, that ought to lift our eyes so that we see Jesus afresh in the midst of whatever we're going through in life today. Wow, God has a plan. It involves access. Secondly, it involves status. It involves status. We read in verse four, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. To be holy and blameless in his sight. We talked about this last week as we talked about our standing before God in heaven in Christ. You see, he selected us to have all the righteousness we could ever get. If you know Christ as your Savior, you stand before God holy and blameless. We mentioned last week that the Scriptures teach that when Jesus died on the cross, all of your sin and my sin was placed on him there. He took all of our sin for us. He became the substitutionary sacrifice for us, the punishment we deserve. The Scriptures also tell us, as we talked about last week, that we put our faith and trust in Christ as Savior. All of his righteousness is placed on us. You can add nothing to the righteousness you have before God in Christ. You can't add another layer. You can't add a speck to it because you have in Christ all the righteousness, all the goodness, all the purity, all the perfection you could ever have or could ever get. How incredible is that? These two words, I, I, you wonder sometimes, why, why does Paul say, Holy and blameless. Why doesn't it just say holy? Why doesn't it just say blameless? They actually emphasize two sides of the same coin. This concept of holy 
comes from utensils and articles and furnishings that would be used in worship settings like the temple. And these items were only ever used, they were set apart for, they were wholly set apart for that purpose to bring glory to God. They'd never been used by anything else. They could never have ever been defiled in any other way because they were set apart. They were perfect and set apart for that purpose. So holy, when we stand before God in his sight, we are holy. That means we, we stand before him just as if we were always sinless. Just as if we were always sinless, always set apart. We, we, were, we were never even introduced to anything that could defile us. And then the word blameless is a little different. Blameless means there's an accusation made, but it won't stick. And this has the idea that when God looks at us as we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we're holy, we've always been set apart, as if we've always been set apart to be sinless for him. But blameless is just as if I had never sinned. God sees me in Christ as if I had never sinned. And when we come to Christ and he forgives us of the failures of our past, one of the struggles we have is that uh, there is this inner critic and then there is the voice of Satan himself who the scriptures describe as the accuser that wants to accuse us and blame us. And so uh, Satan wants to say to us, oh, don't forget what you did 10 years ago. Don't forget how you treated her 25 years ago. Don't, don't forget how you and your first spouse didn't get along and what happened in that relationship. Don't forget this situation. Don't forget that attitude. Don't forget what you did at work. Don't forget what you did on your taxes. There is this bombardment of blame that can get in our heads that Satan the accuser wants us to be tripped up with so we don't put our eyes on Jesus. First John describes Jesus as like our defense attorney before the father as Satan hurls these accusations and Jesus just keeps saying, he's clothed in my righteousness. She's clothed in my righteousness. That is how we stand before God. Talk about status, holy and blameless, just as if we were always sinless, just as if we had never sinned. Now, there's a part of this that even goes into the rest of the passage. We get words like chosen, predestined. Here it says, for he chose us in Christ, in him, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. The, the longest running, deepest dividing theological concept has to do with how we get our salvation. Does God predestine and elect and choose us to be his children before the foundation of the world, before the creation of the universe? Or do we get presented with this gift and whosoever will may come so anyone may come to Jesus? We, we think of verses like John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But then you got this verse that says, for we were, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. And later it'll talk to, in the next verse about being predestined. And it'll talk about being chosen and predestined again in the second half of the sentence as we see it next week. And so we, we wrestle with this in, in seminary hallways, in, uh, in pastor circles. There is this debate. Is our salvation the result of God's sovereignty or man's responsibility? Are we chosen in him or is it whosoever will may come? 
This is an age-old debate, and I'm going to settle it for you once and forever, right? By the way, don't send many articles. Don't send many books. I've read a lot on this. And we have to understand that God reveals himself to, to us in his word, but he reveals to us what we can understand. There are parts of who God is and how he operates that don't make sense to us humanly. So we take God for what he says, and we accept that. And sometimes there are things in tension, like uh, the paradox of how could a holy God write through unholy people his holy and errant word? How could God the Son, the Holy Son of God, come in human flesh, walk among us, and never sin? Similarly, we have this division of, is it I am chosen in him for the foundation of the world, or is it whosoever will may come? Which one is it? Let's take these two ropes. Let's say it's chosen in him for the foundation of the world is this rope. Whosoever will may come when it comes to salvation. It appears to be two distinct ropes. And so people have tended to latch onto one or the other. In the early 16th century, John Calvin kind of formalized some of the concepts around what is now today called Calvinism, but many of his supporters and later generations kind of built up and embellished some of his concepts even beyond him. But then soon after John Calvin and the next generation, Jacobus Arminius, he uh, fleshed things out, and his supporters, again, went further than he did. But he, while Calvin emphasized chosen in him for the foundation of the world, Arminius emphasized this idea of whosoever will may come, that we choose Jesus. Even the Apostle Peter in his, his epistles in the New Testament emphasizes when we don't receive the gospel, we are disobedient. So there is God's sovereignty and man's responsibility that's laid out in Scripture. And some people latch onto one or the other because they appear to be two distinct thoughts. But in reality, what appears to you to be two ropes is actually one rope. And if you look up, <clears throat> you might try to see how they connect, but you can't see how they connect up there. Humanly, we see what appear to be two ropes but up there, it's just one rope. Charles Adam Spurgeon, the great preacher of the late 19th century, who was the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, he was the first to use this illustration of ropes. And he said, you know, if you try to hold on to one for dear life, it will collapse. If I just said, oh, it's only chosen him for the foundation of the world, and I put all my weight on this, it's going to collapse. If I said, no, it's, it's whosoever will may come, and I, that's all I rest in, it's going to collapse. But Spurgeon said, when we leave up to God only what God can know in his infinite wisdom, and we accept what he has revealed, and we say, you know what? The scriptures say, I am chosen in him before the foundation of the world, and the scriptures say that not only am I chosen him before the foundation of the world, but I am whosoever will may come, I had to believe divine sovereignty and human responsibility. When I believe both equally, I don't collapse. I stand firmly or hang firmly on God's truth. But when we just emphasize one without the other, we lose the beauty of God's incredible creation that is rooted in the heart and mind of God. And we can't reduce or simplify what, what is so true. And I think this adds to the beauty of our salvation. I am chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And later in verses 13 and 14, we're going to read, he says, when you believe. So we had some responsibility. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. 
And so can I encourage you as you, you think about words like chosen, election, predestination, believe, respond to the gospel. As you think about some of these concepts, can I encourage you to recognize that both are true, and that's part of the beauty of God's salvation. Deal Moody, the great evangelist of the late 19th century, said, the chosen are the whosoever wills, and the, un- the non-chosen are the whosoever wants. Kind of a way to put it. But here's the beauty. We are chosen in him before the foundation of the world, and yet there was a time when I had to believe and put my faith in Christ. Can I encourage you, if maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, Jesus died so you could be covered with the righteousness of God and have status. All the righteousness you could have before God in Christ. You could have access to the very throne room of heaven. And today, put your faith in the one who died, was buried, and rose again for you so you can know that you are forgiven by God and you stand in his righteousness before God now and forever. If I can help you, I'll be out at the on the patio after the service. We'll have care team members down front here. We'd love to answer any questions you have, or if today's the day you put your faith in Jesus, you turn from your sin and self-righteousness and turn to Christ as Savior, we want to celebrate that with you. If you're joining us online or you're here in the room and it, it is easier for you just to text the name Jesus to the number below me on the screen, we'll follow up with some resources. We'll answer questions you might have. We'll celebrate with you what it means to know who you are in Christ as you trust him as your Savior. But we're talking about here this access, this status only comes through Jesus, through faith in Christ and who he is. So as we survey the landscape of our salvation, we see this access and this status. It causes us to lift up our eyes and see Jesus. The third part of God's incredible plan that we say, wow, and should propel us forward in living for him is our relationship with him, our relationship. We're granted access, status, and a relationship. Look at verse five. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Adoption is a beautiful thing. Some of you may have gotten to a place where there was a tough pregnancy and you chose to put that child up for adoption. Thank you for choosing life. Some of you perhaps had biological children and felt a call of God to adopt a child or children as well. Some of you, God's plan for you to have children involved adoption. I think folks who adopt are some of the heroes of our world. Thank you. We think of adoption, there's something so special about that. If you've been adopted, you are someone that uh, parents chose to love you. And, And there's something beautiful in this word adoption found in verse five. In love, he predestined us. Again, here we go. For adoption to sonship, to be his sons and daughters, Through Jesus Christ, Jesus is the focus still. This word adoption, we read it from kind of our American legal mindset of what adoption was. The Romans were the first ones to set up the legal structure of adoption, adopting not just somebody in your family, but perhaps a total stranger or the child of a servant or a slave. You would choose out of love to adopt that person. It's interesting that the Roman law established that an adopted child... Once the adoption was made legal, could never be disowned, disinherited. They could never be cut out of the will. A biological child could be legally disowned, disinherited, and cut out of the will. 
but an adopted child could not. So when you read this, you've got to expand this from beyond, beyond our American understanding and see it through the Roman legal system that when we are adopted by God through Christ to be God's sons and daughters, that puts us into this relationship that can never be rocked or changed. He will never disown, disinherit, disinherit or take you out of his will. You are his child. See, he prearranged for us all the rights we could ever imagine. An adopted child had more rights in the Roman system, system than a biological child because they wanted that relationship to be a relationship of choice and love, and it was something that was permanent when you decided to adopt a child. And as God's children, we have all the rights we could ever imagine as his adopted sons and daughters. We have this relationship as his child as his child, or as his children. Romans 8, 15, it says this, you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit, the spirit of God, when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. We have this relationship as his children. Secondly, through his son. We did nothing to establish this relationship. It was all established by Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection for us. And thirdly, it's for his satisfaction. It says, in accordance with his pleasure and will, God is satisfied to rescue and save us and adopt us into his family. It is satisfying for God. Max Lucado puts it this way, you're special not because of what you have, you're special because of who you are. You know, this book of Ephesians is an ancient manuscript that answers our modern questions. Like, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? They're answered in this book, those questions and, and the myriad of other questions that come along with it. And part of that answer is, if you know Jesus as your Savior, you are a son of the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are a daughter of the King of kings and Lord of lords. You have a relationship. Christianity isn't a religion. It's a relationship with God through his son, Jesus. In the 1870s, Harriet Buell wrote a, gospel song called A Child of the King. Listen to the lyrics of this song. My father is rich in houses and lands. He holdeth the wealth of the world in his hands. Of rubies and diamonds, of silver and gold, his coffers are full. He has riches untold. My father's own son, the savior of men, once wandered the earth as the poorest of them. But now he is reigning forever on high and will give me a home in heaven by and by. I once was an outcast, Stranger on earth, a sinner by choice, and alien by birth. But I've been adopted, my name's written down, an heir to a mansion, a robe, and a crown. I'm a child of the king. I'm a child of the king. With Jesus, my savior, I'm a child of the king. If you know Jesus, you are God's child. You're a child of the king. Wow, God has a plan. It ought to propel us forward in how we live and love for him every day. Fourthly, his plan not only involves access and status and a relationship, but it involves purpose. There's intentionality about his plan, purpose for us because of that access and status and relationship. There is a mission, there is a passion, there is a drive that we have. This weekend, our nation honors civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr., we think of his intentionality and purpose in fighting for equality. He talked a lot about 
living lives of purpose. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, no one really knows why they're alive until they know what they die for. Some of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the centuries, even last year, had to give their lives for Jesus. You know what you're living for when you know what you'll die for. King also said, it does not matter how long you live, but how well you do it. It's with intentionality. We're to have purpose. Martin Luther King Jr. said on one occasion, use me, God, show me how to take who I am, who I wanna be, and what I can do, and use it for a greater a purpose greater than myself. And you know, when we really understand what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 1, we begin to really grasp that there is a purpose, a mission for us that is bigger than ourselves, that is God-sized, that we get to be a part of collectively as a church with our brothers and sisters in Christ and his family, but individually as well. Look at verse 6 about this purpose, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. I mentioned there were four verbs in these four verses that are the main verbs. The first one was, he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing, blessed us. He has chosen us to be holy and blameless in verse four. He has predestined us, prearranged for us for the adoption of sonship, verse five. In verse six, he has given us freely his grace, in the one he loves, Jesus. Again, lifting our eyes up to see Jesus as we survey the landscape of our salvation. To the praise of his glorious grace, which is freely given us in the one he loves. There is this freedom that comes with the goodness and grace of God that releases us to live our lives intentionally on mission and with purpose. He gave us all the freedom we could ever want. And he has freed us with this great gift of salvation, his goodness and grace. What has he freed us to do? Well, this little phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace, is gonna pop up several times in this book, and it's linked beginning here and throughout the book to three things. Number one, he gave us all the freedom we could ever want to bring him glory, to the praise, to the glory, to, to, that our lives would point to him, to, the, to, the, to bring glory to him. Secondly, to enjoy his grace, not just to bring him glory, but to enjoy his grace. We get to enjoy this goodness. We get to live our lives free from the shackles of sin, covered in the righteousness of Christ. We get to enjoy his grace. And thirdly, there, there is an emphasis in the book of Ephesians and in these statements of, to the praise of his glorious grace that we get to be the ones who spread his gospel. We'll talk about it later in the book, how we spread that in love, how we bring light into darkness, but we get to spread the good news of who Jesus is and how others can have access, status, and relationship and can live life on purpose. Maybe you've gotten numb to the good news of the gospel. Maybe you've been a bit adrift. Maybe the Holy Spirit is saying to you, do you see this incredible plan? And part of the plan is that you have a mission to bring him glory, to enjoy his grace, and to spread the gospel. To spread that gospel. You know, there are a lot of folks around here that live on mission and purpose and serve. Thank you for the ways in which you serve. And Sometimes there are times when some of the faithful saints here step into the presence of our Lord and we celebrate their lives. It's a reminder, too, that when someone steps into the presence of the Lord and steps out of ministries here, there are opportunities for others to step up and live life on purpose. In the middle of November, Calvary lost one of our dear servants, part of our team here at Calvary, Caroline Belinsky. 
Many of you will recognize her face from the bookstore. You may uh, recognize her from early childhood. Two of her daughters, her two daughters were working here when Calvary moved from the warehouse into this campus uh, back in 1999, and they asked their mom to come to church with them, and she began to serve with them, and her passion and love for Christ was reignited, and she began to walk even more closely with Jesus. She served here in many capacities, but most of you, many of you may know her from the bookstore or from early childhood where she would welcome your children and greet you, whether it was a daytime program or a weekend service, and, and her heart's desire was to help children know the love of God and how much Jesus loved them. She served so faithfully, and that spirit of service transferred to her children. As a matter of fact, her two sons, her two youngest, Kevin and Chris Belinsky, are on our team, work on our staff and our, and our technology. All of the visuals right now are being controlled under the direction of Kevin back at the booth right now while I'm speaking. And Chris is dealing with the audio in the room and, and my microphone, the speaker system, and they're serving like their mom has served for so long. Her battle with cancer came to an end in the middle of November when Caroline stepped into the presence of Jesus. And many of us have been blessed by her life. She lived with purpose and intentionality. And when we see folks like that as an example, I think it's important for us all to step up and serve in the places she served and serve in other spots, whether it's formerly in the, the programs of the church or as we serve others and serve life on mission to spread the gospel in the community. This next Saturday... January 22nd at 10 a.m., we'll have the memorial service for Caroline Belinsky here in this room, and I'll have the opportunity of uh, speaking at that and sharing more about her life and, and what it means for us today and her legacy that she leaves us. I know we've had a number of folks asking when that was going to happen because they didn't want to miss it because she made an impact in your life. Martin Luther King Jr., talking about the day of his death and the day of his funeral, he said this about the day of his funeral. He says, I don't want a long funeral, and if you ever get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. Every now and then, I wonder what I would want them to say. Tell them, Luther said, or Martin Luther King Jr. said, tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Prize. That isn't important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or 400 other awards. That's not important. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. That's not important. I'd like somebody to mention on that day of my funeral that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. You know, as the followers of Christ, when we understand the kind of access we have, the status we have before God in Christ's righteousness, we understand our relationship with him as his adopted children that he will never disown, disinherit, or cut out of the will. And we understand that he gives us purpose to bring him glory, to enjoy his grace, and to spread his gospel. We live on purpose. That propels us forward when we understand God has a plan. Wow, God had a salvation plan long before I knew or you knew that we had a sin problem. Have you been wowed? I hope, not by my tux, but I hope your attention has been drawn to this incredible sentence, this first half of this sentence. Maybe you'll spend some time this week just saying, thank you, God, for Jesus. Wow. Wow. But then may it propel you to live for him 
this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow, because of who you are according to his grace. Let me just ask you. So, simple questions here. The first question is just uh, about the wow. Does God's plan wow you? Maybe God's spirit is stirring you to see your salvation afresh and to see Jesus afresh. And is God's plan propelling you forward in living for him? As I said, we look at this landscape. We see the access to all the spiritual blessings, the very throne room of heaven. We see the status of being holy and blameless in his sight forever in Christ. We see the relationship that we are his adopted children. And we see the purpose we have to live for him according to his grace that are to propel us forward in living for Jesus.